Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Vic Fidelli, who is the Ontario Finance Minister, has announced that he will give us an economic update in about two weeks on November the 15th. It's kind of a mini budget, really. Uh, problem is, uh, we don't know where the numbers are and, and exactly what's doing what here when it comes to deficits, what the government's going to do. I mean, they keep saying that they want to get the books in order. Uh, but there's a great deal of discrepancy right now as to where we're starting from and just how big the deficit is. Alan Carter, the uh, anchor of uh, Global News at 530 and 6, and of course the host of Focus Ontario, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about this. Morning, Alan. How are you doing today? Well, good morning, Bill. I'm, I'm well, although ensconced in gray skies and rain. Yeah, well, that seems to be the black cloud that's hanging over Queen's Park these days, I guess. <laughs> uh, who do you trust, Alan? I mean, you know, you, the, the government came out and said, you know, there's a $15 billion deficit, and, and boy, do we have a lot of work to do. And just a couple of days ago, Rob Benzie in the Toronto Star wrote a report that suggested that those numbers aren't really true, that they're putting numbers in there that don't really count. Where are we here? Where's the truth in this? Well, the $15 billion number has always been suspect from the moment that they trumpeted it after former B.C. Premier um, uh, Campbell released his report saying that, well, this is the true number. And you know, and since then, we've heard a lot of rhetoric from the Ford government about cover-up. And they weren't just cooking the books, they were frying them and all the rest of it. And now we have a select committee looking at what happened to all the money. Except for, it doesn't appear that $15 billion is even close to what the real number is. And that, if you were to take $15 billion, that includes all of the spending promises that the Liberals said that they were going to do if re-elected, and I'm not sure if you followed what happened in June, but they were decimated and reduced to seven seats. So all of that, all those spending promises go out the window, yet we continue to hear this $15 billion number. Come November 15th, here's what's going to happen, is we're going to find out that, oh, the deficit is far, far lower, and Doug Ford and his ministers will take credit for it. Having done what in the last five months? <laughs> Winning the election and not spending the money that the Liberals said they would spend. Not to mention, like, just do do the quick math. I mean, it was just, what, last week they canceled the expansion of those universities? That's $300 million, right? Well, they've done a bunch of things like that, and if you you know you subtract them as, the, as you go along from that $15 billion number, well, you'd be down. But they continue to stick... Hardcore to no 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 the deficit's fifteen billion the liberals left us in a fifteen billion dollar hole. Isn't this a bit of a shell game that just about all political parties do once they they gain you know the corner office at Queens Park? Yeah, I mean I guess it is a pox on all their houses. Um, and, and you're right, you know. Remember, fifteen years ago the liberals came in and said, "Oh, the cupboard's way more bare." You know, it's bare. We have to bring in this, uh, you know, health tax after McGinty said he wouldn't raise our taxes and all the rest. And then they put in this law that said, well, here's what we're going to do to make sure this doesn't happen anymore. We're going to make the auditors sign off on the books before we go into election. Well, guess what happened this time around? Well, now we have a tiff with the auditor, all based on this really arcane discussion over whether or not pension assets should be counted on the red side or the black side of the ledger. And Bonnie Lissick says, no, no, you can't count that money. And here's the thing to watch for, Bill, is that the, what the conservatives have done is they've said, no, no, we agree with the, we agree with the auditor. And that has jacked up the uh, deficit number from 
where it was under the liberals, because the liberals said, no, we don't agree with the auditor. But you watch. The conservatives have only said, we're going to adopt her accounting for the time being. Later in their mandate, they may just say, you know what? <laughs> you know, sorry, you know those pension assets? No, we're going to put it back on the black side. And Oh, by the way, now the deficit is half of what we said it was. And, and you can see that coming, I mean, because that was all in Gordon Campbell's report, wasn't it, Dallas? That uh, he said to, uh, the government should accept uh, the, the the Auditor General's bookkeeping on a provisional basis. In other words, it suits your purpose now, so yeah, knock yourself out. But later on, you know, that's you you can you can walk back on that. And you, it's a matter of you, you know that's going to happen at some point because things. Let's face it, with all economies, there's, there's you know ups and downs. And when we hit one of those downs, you got to think that Vic Fidelity is going to reconsider that. Well, and, and here's the thing that I suspect is that they probably won't even do it. They, they won't even do it this year. They'll continue to say, no, no, the deficit is, I think Lissick says that the deficit is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to $12 billion, uh, according to her financial calculations. So, you know, again, even if you take Lissick's numbers, you know, this $15 billion number is inflated. So if it is, let's just say uh, when Vic comes out on the 15th and he's going to say, okay, it's 12 is the number we're in the hole, then in the spring, he'll continue to, you know, say 12. But a year and a half from now, two years from now, maybe Lissick, I forget when her term is up, she may be done, She may be, there may be a new auditor, and suddenly all oh, the numbers are different. Now the Ford government has brought the thing down, the deficit down to $2 billion or $4 billion. And, and we need to put that whole thing in context. And I know you've mentioned this on, on the show in the past, Alan, is that uh, in the first part of, of her term as, as uh, the, the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick actually thought, yeah, you can do that. You can put those over as government assets. And and the, the change in decision just happened to be just around the same time that she was having a tiff with the Premier about, about bookkeeping and about numbers from one of her reports. And all of a sudden, there was a change of mind about that. So I, I, you got to wonder how sincere she is about it as well. Well, yeah, I mean... I hate to call, you know, the auditor's a, a whole lot better with numbers than me. I'm a journalist, you know, if I could count, I'd probably do something else with my life. But uh, the thing is, is that it is a little suspect that, you know, that at the same time that she's outraged over uh, the change in powers in her office over advertising and a bunch of other things, that that's right at the same sort of time that, well, no, we're going to change the 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 accounting measures and frankly there's just no consensus in the country over how to do it and i think that it's all going to go away once miss lissick's tenure is done how's this going to impact uh, what what vic fidelli talks about on the 15th uh there's there's a lot of concern obviously because of some of the announcements the government's already made as you mentioned you know the cap and trade thing which they officially killed this week with that legislation uh, there's a few other programs they've nixed all the campaign promises. Of course, the liberals made those. Those were never going to be, I guess, considered at all. But you know, this this concern about social service cuts and a number of other things that are going on. And and uh, Lisa McLeod says, well, yeah, we're going to announce that, but you get, you're going to be pleasantly surprised. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it, it really all boils down to to what the government's finances are going to be and what their priorities are going to be. Well, and this is why you know you, I think you're going to have to. Take whatever Mr. Fideli says on the 15th with a big old grain of salt because, I mean, the opposition will point out that, look, this is just a pretext for cuts. And some of the things to keep your eye on, Bill, like, for example, free tuition, which the liberals brought in. Yeah. 
when the it was announced that the expansion of campuses would be canceled, the minister responsible for that file would not answer whether or not free tuition would be cut. What about free prescription drugs for you know all of that sort of stuff? Is that going to be gone? I mean, we, we're going to be watch those recent liberal promises that brought that win brought in in the last 18 months of her tenure and you can expect a lot of them to go away well i mean the concern we've got here in hamilton of course is that billion dollars for uh, for the lrt project that uh, kathleen win had promised uh, and i know that during the campaign uh, mr ford said oh yeah the money's there and even if you don't want to build lrt you're still going to get a billion dollars but there's some skepticism about that now because of the way they've walked back on some of the other commitments from the previous government we just don't know do we no, and, you know, so much of the Ford government has been talked, but not a whole lot of details. Now, to be fair, there is a process where these details come out. I think it, it would be, you know, wouldn't matter the stripe of the political sign on the door, uh, on the premier's office. It, it would roll out relatively the same. I'm not saying that they're being coy with the numbers. It's just that so many things from social service policy, to environmental policy, to the LRT, to all of these things, continue to, we just continue to say, well, stand by, we have a plan, we'll announce that shortly. This, the talk, the rumblings, though, I, I, even, not just around Queen's Park, but I think right around the province by some of the skeptics and some of the critics, obviously, I guess, Alan, is that, look, at this is, this is going to be son of the common sense revolution. This is part de. This is Mike Harris reborn, etc. Does that kind of talk bother them, or, or do they care one way or another? Well, I, I think so. I mean, what you just continue to hear is, well, you know, the liberals have left us in a mess, and they... You know, they spent money we didn't have, and we have to keep things under, get things under control. And Ontario's open for business, and that's I think they're just going to stay on that message track. But obviously, when we saw with Mike Harris, which was the same song basically, although it was the NDP that he was chastising, it was the Ray government that he took over from. But we saw the cuts to social service, we saw cuts to health care, and hospitals were closed, and battles with teachers, federations, etc. And there's, there's a real concern that that's going on. Uh, it's a different cast of characters. I think Jim Wilson, I think, is the only guy left over from that era, isn't he? At least in cabinet, anyway. But, but I, I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, but with that in mind, is this a kinder, gentler conservative party, or are they, are they going to play hardball like Mike Harris did? Well, I, I don't think there's anything that... Um that would suggest that Ford Nation is kinder and gentler. I mean, I think I think you've seen that the premier sort of thrives in in chaos and in, and sort of relishes it in a way. So I, you know, I don't know if the Ford government will continue to conduct itself throughout its mandate the way that it did, for example, this summer with invocation of notwithstanding and all that kind of chaos and with the cut of city council in Toronto. But it certainly seems that way. And when we start getting to public service contracts, which will happen over the course of his tenure and how he negotiates, I think you're going to start seeing more protests on the lawn. I think it is going to be, you know, it's it's going to be very 90s, which, you know, is great. I'm going to get some, you know, I'm going to get out, get out my flannel. Again. Well, you're going to get a lot of fresh air. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
and and we remember those days, the the days of protest and and all that other stuff too. And uh, it's it's interesting to see just how they're going to approach this. I mean, because they're being a little coy. And you're right. I mean, most of the announcements they've made in the last two or three months is what they're not going to do. And I, I guess on the 15th, we might get at least a little peek as to what their priorities are and what they're actually going to spend money on as opposed to what they're not going to spend money on. Yeah, I, would, I mean, I know that I'm, I'm, you know, they're saying mini-budget and all the rest. Of, I will hold judgment on that because the fall economic statements can be not that much. Like, it's not... It, it's not a budget. It's not a line item. It's a. It's basically a statement of the finances of the of the government uh, of the current state of the finances. But it doesn't necessarily lend itself towards promises and new spending and you know and cuts. And I'm not sure we're going to see the kind of detail that people would like to see. Well, obviously, uh, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink. I guess we'll have to wait and see because Mr. Fidelli's keeping his cards pretty close to the chest right now, and uh, we're not hearing a lot from the other ministers. Uh, very quickly, uh, Focus Ontario coming up this weekend. What are you going to be talking about? Well, we have uh, former Prime Minister Jacques Tetcho with a fascinating interview uh, where we talk about the importance of words uh, and the power of words, and especially with what's going on south of the border. And he comments and on on Donald Trump and the words that Donald Trump uses. But then, here, I pivot to the fact that, you know, Gretchen has been in power in, in, or was in public life for so long, there are terms that he freely uses in his new book, like Eskimo, or the fact that he was Minister of Indian Affairs. We don't use those terms anymore. So how do you balance that, these powerful words being used by uh, the President of the United States that Kretschmer says is a dog whistle, as opposed to the words that he still says he uses around the dinner table that a lot of people would consider not politically correct. Look forward to that, as always, of course, every weekend. Uh, Focus Ontario, it's on Saturday evening, and of course on Sunday morning, a repeat on uh, Global TV. Alan, have a great weekend. Thanks so much for this today. Bill, I always appreciate being on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Alan Carter, of course, host of Global News at 530 and 6, and the host of Focus Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we mentioned a couple of days ago, we're in kind of a lag period right now when it comes to city council. The election, obviously, was a few weeks ago. And uh, the new council, which includes five new members, uh, doesn't get sworn in until the first week of December. Uh, but that doesn't mean there isn't news coming out of City Hall. Uh, we find out that it looks like there's going to be at least one new face, maybe more, on the Hamilton Police Services Board. And uh, quite a few challenges facing the new council. So the learning curve is going to be pretty quick for the new members. Joining us to uh, talk about what could be happening here is John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. John, and I welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Oh, good morning, Bill. Nice to be with you. Word today that uh, Terry Whitehead, who's been a longtime member of the Police Services Board uh, and was reelected, of course, in this past election, says he doesn't want to uh, uh, seek a shot on the board anymore. Does that surprise you? Uh, a little bit. Uh, there was no indication of that uh, in the campaign. But uh, on the other hand, let's face it, it's been uh, you know, a pretty bumpy ride for all the members of that police services board. And it has been for, it's got to be at least uh, two terms of council, uh, maybe more. So the, the, the idea that somebody uh, would like to get off the police services board probably shouldn't be a surprise at all. Well, there's a period of time there where I thought the official name was actually the much maligned police services board because that, there, there was always controversy going on. 
Yeah, the MMPSB. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, well, and there and there still is uh, unresolved controversy. Uh, you know, we had the story earlier this week that yet another member of the police services board is has been uh, suspended uh, pending a, an investigation of uh, who knows what. Um, I was thinking, uh, you know, this Ontario uh, Civilian Police Commission that oversees these police boards, they, they must just groan whenever they see a Hamilton phone number on call display. I mean, we've had four people suspended, uh, all this running to the teacher, and I, I don't know what, what the issue is, whether the threshold for filing a complaint with that provincial body is maybe too low. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but... Uh, we're, we spent a lot of time um, in the principal's office, so well, to speak. Well, not only were there suspensions, yeah, not only, but we're told that actually there's two members that were being investigated. Uh, yeah. One, a citizen member, of course, who was the city appointee, uh, and the other one, I, well, I've tried to ask around, and, and uh, I, 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 matter of fact, I asked if it was Councillor Whitehead, and uh, nobody seems to want to confirm or deny. The only one who's actually said it wasn't them was Councillor Ferguson. Yeah, and uh, with regard to Whitehead, I think he did get into some controversy over uh, taking a picture from his car. Um, you know, there's uh, there's no nothing too picayune to be the subject of complaints in <laughs> when it comes to the police services board. So who knows uh, who knows what's being investigated? But the the bottom line is um, we have a, a clearly uh, up until now, uh, and maybe with the new faces things will change. But we've got what appears to be a totally dysfunctional board. Uh, at the same time, they're passing annual police service budgets uh, in the $160 million range, and uh, I don't think they're the, the appropriate civilian oversight is being applied to our police, and I don't think we've had proper oversight for many, many years. Well, and you wonder just about attitudes and what's going on here, and, and you know, the appointees, and uh and and like you say, the the brouhaha that's caused essentially wasn't that the the, the essence of what that uh, citizen or the public committee said in mean, the last time that they filed complaints and it had to do with with a couple of the citizen members who were, had a disagreement. Didn't they basically sell, tell these guys, look, you know, clean up your own backyard, okay? Not, instead of running to us all the time. I mean, they they I got that sense that they were saying, you know, just that's what you're there for to to act like adults, and they're not doing too much of that. So uh, maybe a few new faces wouldn't be a bad idea on that board. No, it wouldn't be a bad idea. The the only problem with, well, I, I guess it's a chicken and egg situation. Uh, you get new faces on, you get fresh perspectives, uh, and, and hopefully, in some cases, better behavior. But what you also get are people who are new to the system, and uh, if you're thinking of a police services board role as being uh, proper civilian oversight, and particularly when it comes to scrutinizing budgets, uh, you're now getting people that maybe lack uh, even as much experience as the people they replaced. Having said that, I mean, the past police services boards, uh, uh, there, there was a little controversy three years ago over uh, a budget, and actually Whitehead was, was kind of at the lead of that uh, pushback. But essentially, we're getting budgets passed year after year, and at the same time, when you go to the balance sheet for the police services board, you see them piling up huge, huge um, reserves for things like uh, retirement, um, you know, vacation. Uh, in the tens of millions of dollars, these reserves are sitting at. But it appears that there's enough in their budget annually that they're able to meet these retirements out of their regular budget. 
So you got reserve funds piling up, uh, and uh, there's fat in that budget. There's just no way you can be piling up reserves in the tens of millions of dollars and then turn around and say this is a bare-bones budget, folks. Part of the problem, though, and, and this is something I've talked about on the program, and I know you've written about it, John, over the years, uh, are citizen members to boards. And, and the, of course, with the Police Services Board, there's only one citizen member appointed by city council. The others are, are provincial appointees. And and, and I'm, this is not to besmirch the character of the people that are on that board right now, uh, because I know them all, and I know them to be fine, upstanding people and, and very smart and articulate, and, and uh, I've got a lot of confidence in them. But you always question uh, when appointments like this are made about cre- you know credibility and, and performance and whether or not they're actually capable of taking on that role. Let's face it, a lot of these are partisan appointments. And, and, and that, that, I think, colors a lot of people's attitude towards the board and, and a lot of the, the citizen committees. It, it certainly does. And, uh, and, but I think there's also, because I, I don't think our police services board is unique. I, I think there's a culture in police service boards of uh, where the members see themselves not so much as representing the community and safeguarding the community's interests uh, and safeguarding the public purse, uh, more they see themselves as kind of an enabler of whoever happens of the administration of the of the police. They're they're almost like a focus group, um, holding the the chief's hands and and enabling his uh, or her uh, work. And I think that's just a fundamental misread of, of what governance and civilian oversight should be. And it's partly because of some of the legislation where there, there's all this business about they, they shouldn't be involved in uh, operational matters, but uh, they, they do have control of that budget if they choose to exercise it. And, you know, and, and then you got the issue of is there, is there sufficient, no matter how bright these people are, and I totally agree with you uh, that there's some really, really fine people on the current board, do they have the kind of financial literacy uh, that you really need to properly scrutinize and question uh, the budget? Well, it's, it's a question, and, and like I say, that's not calling into question these people, but I'm just talking about on a conceptual basis, and we see this happen an awful lot, at, even at the municipal level with some of these citizen appointments. I mean, if you track them, and again, there's some very good people there. It's, it's, it's not a concern about that, but if you track who gets appointed to citizen committees uh, by city council, a lot of the time you're going to find out that they were people that worked on somebody's campaign or was a contributor or something of that nature, and, and this is considered to be a payback. You know, hey, if I get, a, I, I'd like to get on that board if I could, and magically that seems to happen more often than not. Well, it does, and, and, and frankly, that, that isn't going to change. But even, even if the appointments are partisan, uh, it seems to me that you can still look for somebody who's got some qualifications because, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter what party you're, you're in favor of, there's a broad uh, sector of people that support those parties. So if, if it's now a conservative government and we're, and we're appointing people friendly to the conservative government, let's at least appoint people that have some background in finance or administration that, that can offer, uh, you know, a proper oversight. Uh, you, you know, even if they are partisan appointments, you can still get people that have the capability of uh, really making a difference. There's a horse trading going on right now, as we know, John. We mentioned that obviously the council's not sworn in yet, but phone calls have already started. I think there's a meeting next week with uh, in, uh, orientation. 
But but that this horse trading about who's going to be on what committee, who's going to chair the committee, et cetera, like that. This 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 goes on right now, and a lot of that stuff is going to be pre-decided, I guess, uh, before these guys actually get sworn in as to who's going to sit on what committee and who's going to be uh, pulling the reins of power. It's a, always an interesting concept and an interesting exercise to watch. It's the most important in-camera meeting that we have every four years, and because they're not sworn in, uh, it, it's not a violation of the act. Uh, these people are technically, uh, you know, at this point in kind of a political uh, limbo, so they're they're very free to to caucus uh, on these issues. But if the public understood what really comes out of that, it's it's who's chairing the standing committees, who's on the the various committees, uh, and certainly who's going to be uh, appointed by council to the police services board and and other important boards uh, that that we have. Well, it's, and it's, uh, it sets the tone, doesn't it, for the council? Oh, sure, it does, and and it kind of tells you who's running the show, uh, depending on on who gets to sit on the, on uh, the these various boards. So, yeah, it, it's a very very important. Uh, thing that happens uh, out of the sight of the public, and in fairness, I don't know how you do it in public because it would be pretty ugly, I imagine. But uh, there you have it. Well, and, and the reason why I'm, it's so important about you know the tone that's set and who's going to be doing what and who's going to be pull, calling the shots, really, to a certain extent. Uh, is that these guys are going to have to hit the ground running? I mean, I don't even want to talk about the LRT issue right now, but we know that's there, that's looming. But but there's the thing, for instance, about cannabis. I mean, you know, how are they going to regulate that? Where are the stores going to be? How are they going to? There's stuff like that. They just run and on and on and on. This is going to be a pretty important first three or four months for this council. Well, it's like the dog chasing the car. Uh, what do you do when you catch it? And uh, that that's going to be the case for uh, for some of the newcomers. Um, uh, pretty good crop of uh, promising looking crop. You and I sat there and talked to a few of them on election night yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know you wish them well and you you hope that they you know that they don't lose their idealism too quickly and that they maybe actually do bring about um, a little change in tone with our council well what i'd like to see i guess if you all had wish lists is is for these guys to stop kicking things down the the road, which the the council has done for the last two or three terms. I mean, issues like area rating, issues like uh, the well, entertainment facilities. There's one that doesn't. I never even heard any discussion about that during the campaign, John. But we've got three huge facilities, and we need to find out what we're going to do with them. I mean, we're going to bring in private sector. Are we going to rebuild them? Are we going to knock them down? Uh, nobody seemed to want to talk about that. But it, we've got to decide something like that sooner than later. And there's the entertainment, uh, yeah, the whole what used to be HECFI, there's all of that to deal with. There's, uh, and, and, you know, if you think about that, uh, we, we're all aware that the, the Hamilton Bulldogs are, are certainly looking at alternative arena arrangements. Uh, so we could be in a situation where, where Cops Coliseum literally has no um, recurring tenant and, then the question is: Is it more valuable as a hockey rink, or is it more valuable as something as a as a building site? You know, a fundamental issues about whether you know that these facilities, that facility at least, should even uh, continue to exist. And if there's going to be another arena, is the city a partner in this? I mean, there's a lot of things going on, and we've even heard the story. Uh, and again, you know, the, that the, there's a possibility of a Grey Cup coming here in the next three or four years. The city has to be a partner in that. I mean, nobody holds a Grey Cup these days without the city itself actually being a participant. And I haven't heard anybody. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, what we've heard from a couple of the councillors, well, we're not putting in a nickel in toward that. 
Uh, so do we turn our back on that? I mean, and that's only one counselor's opinion, but I mean, what this does is uh, I think it, it motivates a conversation about just what kind of a council this is going to be and how proactive they're going to be on some of these pretty controversial issues. Yeah, and just with the Grey Cup, I mean, uh, we're, we, all we have to do is look at what happened in Calgary uh, this week where um, uh, there was a very, very narrow vote that's going to allow the, the notion of them hosting a Winter Olympics to to at least continue for another day. But uh, the, the, the sense is, and I think we're seeing it everywhere, uh, the public is, um, I think, starting to become aware that these mega sporting events um, tend to really just cost money, and uh, you, you've got all these uh, tourism experts and so on who always talk about, uh, you know, the induced dollars that these things bring to a community. They do these calculations. Uh, I think a lot of it is bogus, frankly. I, I think, uh, you, know, mega, you know, when you think of the Olympics especially, whether you're talking about the summer or the winter Olympics, over the last 20 years, uh, they have refurbished uh, five or six major communities with fabulous facilities. And do we just keep building new ones over and over again, or do we go back to some of these recently built ones that are still in pretty good shape, or do we just let them go into uh, disrepair like has happened in Rio already? I mean, uh, apparently that's just a ghost town down there with all those billions of dollars spent on, on sports facilities. It's you know, there, there's probably a better use of public money than that. Grey Cup's a bit of a different animal, though, because most of the time it doesn't include any infrastructure. I mean, that's a, I mean, mind you, most yes. of the CFL teams already have new stadiums now. Yep. Uh, so so that's done. That's a given. And I've, I've attended the last four or five, I guess. And, and I tell you, there is an economic boost to the city. I mean, Winnipeg, Toronto, not so much, because Toronto doesn't seem to care much about the CFL. But in Ottawa last year, and, and I'm sure it'll be the same way in, in Edmonton, uh, and I think about the last 12 years now, I saw some numbers on this the other day, uh, the city does, whichever city hosts the Grey Cup, does actually reap an economic benefit. I mean, and it wasn't always like that. The last time there was a Grey Cup here in 1996, it was awful. But the league was on its deathbed at that time, and the franchise here in Hamilton wasn't very good. And, uh, and it was a tough sell, but it's not anymore. So I, I'd, be, I'd love to see this council behind the Tiger Cats to do something like that. But again, that's, that's, we don't even know what year that may be at this point. But you've got to at least hope that the council is going to be open-minded about it. Well, there's no question. Uh, we, we have a stadium now that, that, that can be retrofitted for the purpose. The other thing we have that we didn't have in the earlier Grey Cup is we have so many more hotel rooms right in our city uh, that we didn't have before. So, you know, those are very positive signs. And, uh, you know, and, and the Grey Cup, let's face it, it, it is fun. It, uh, you know, this, the, the week leading up to it and, and then, of course, the event itself. Uh, it, it's, a, it's more of a fun event than, uh, you know, the Olympics, which tend to be deadly serious and have all kinds of national implications. Grey Cup is, uh, it, it's Canadian and it, and it is fun. Well, we've had city councils in the past, John, uh, that uh, they simply don't want to have any part of anything. They just want to kind of look inward and just look after their wards and make sure that the cracks in the sidewalks are fixed, and that's all important stuff. But uh, I think, I'd like to think that we've grown up a little bit and, and expanded our horizons and understand that we, we have to be a player, uh, and, and well, nationally and internationally, really, for that matter. I'm not so sure everybody on council buys into that right now, but uh, you'd like to think it's at least going to be the majority mindset. 
Well, and the, the other thing we have that, that, that was missing uh, back in the, in the 90s, uh, we, we have these sports entrepreneurs now, Michael Andlar and, and Bob Young. These are people that can make things happen. They're, they're you know, people that, that know how to think big and, and make big things happen. Uh, we, we, we didn't have that kind of a driving force. And we've also got uh, a much more robust uh, private sector entertainment and hospitality community than, than we had in the 90s, where everything was still under HECFI and a couple of hotels, but really not much going on. That whole sector is, is very strong in our community now. So uh, th- this would be a, a good opportunity to um, harness some of that uh, energy and some of that expertise. Problem we've had, though, is uh, especially in more recent history, we've had kind of an ambiguous relationship between city council and some of those uh, sports entrepreneurs that we've talked about here in this city, especially. And you'd like to think that some fences could be mended there, and uh, you know, I, I hope that can be the case anyway. Well, I, I think we're certainly in better shape than we were, you know, four or six years ago. Uh, you know, there's there's useful dialogue going on on the on on the hockey front, I think, and uh, also. Uh, you know, I think with the lawsuits finally settled or about to be finally settled on the uh, stadium issue, where you know the the stage is set for you know leaving all that uh, animosity behind us and and uh, moving forward. Hope so. Hope so. John, thanks as always. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again soon. You too. My pleasure. Thanks, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of uh, tongues wagging and a lot of head shaking, of course, about the news we heard earlier this week that Statistics Canada is endeavoring to uh, access our bank accounts, get confidential information for those bank accounts. And they say because, well, they want to be 21st century technology and this is what has to be done. Uh, That's a big stretch for an awful lot of people, obviously, that are concerned about privacy issues. But with the news, obviously, that that's going on, the, uh, the government went on the defensive this week. Uh, we first heard about this from uh, David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News, and David joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. David, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, happy to be here on a drizzly, gross day in Ottawa. Uh, well, not not like much it. better here in Hamilton today, David, weather-wise anyway. Well, how, are you surprised by the government's reaction on this? I mean, they, they, they immediately jumped to the defense and said, yeah, what do you expect us to do? Uh, that, that seemed to be their mindset. I definitely think there's a big... Uh, the, the Statistics Canada, for sure has been a bit tone deaf on the implications here. So this project uh, that StatsCan has had in development, um, they've been working on it for more than a year. And they've been going through all the privacy safeguards and they've got technology and this and that, that they're very confident will protect Canadians' privacy, uh, protect a privacy breach. But they never pause to think, is asking for this bank data an invasion of privacy to begin with? And many people think it is. Certainly the opposition conservatives, all week long, this is dominated question period, they say it doesn't matter if you've got all the safeguards in the world once you have this data, the very fact that you took this data without consent, I should point out, is an invasion of privacy. So so the fact that StatsCan proceeded with this plan, and by the way, did not disclose this to anyone. We ended up with some leaked documents. That's how it came to light. So StatsCan was not going to tell anybody about this. It was just going to start hoovering up the private financial data of 500,000 Canadians from the nine largest banks and credit card companies uh, in the country. Those banks, by the way, they're not very happy about this. They They think their customers will be unhappy to know 
that there's a chance your stuff is going to end up in the hand of StatsCan. So right now, it's a real, yeah, it's a real communications problem and a PR problem, not only for StatsCan, but now by extension uh, for the Trudeau government. Well, and as you continued with, and you're reporting this week, David, I mean, you know, the privacy commissioner I know has weighed in on this and says he's guardedly okay with this, but but even the, even, you know, Stats Canada, when they came after you you approached them about this, you're right, they they said, look, we've covered all the bases, we've talked to the privacy commissioner about this, they didn't talk to the public, It's it's our information it's my bank account why weren't we brought to the yes. table yeah that's crucial bill and so the privacy commissioner as a result of our reporting has launched an investigation it shouldn't say as a result of our reporting as a result of our reporting lots and lots of your listeners canadians across the country wrote in to the privacy commissioner said i got a real problem with this and so the privacy commissioner having received all those complaints is now investigating this project but even before that even before that, the Privacy Commissioner, in his annual report to Parliament, remember the Privacy Commissioner is an officer of Parliament, an independent agent, does an annual report to Parliament, and it had already said, um, StatsCan's pretty good, but here's the problem I have, is that StatsCan needs to be more transparent with Canadians about how it's going about these so-called big data projects. So that, that was a warning that pri- the Privacy Commissioner gave you know, months ago. And StatsCan, you know, now says we're happy to have this investigation by the Privacy Commissioner. We're ready to take additional steps. But I, I agree with you, Bill. The first thing StatsCan might have wanted to have done is saying, uh, you know, this, it's a new world out there. we got to move with the digital times. Here's our proposals. And this is the other reason we're getting into this now. It was just this time last year when StatsCan was given broad new powers by the Trudeau government to do just what it's planning to do now, which is, without your consent, tap into your cell phone company's data, your hydro utilities data, your bank data, you name it. Uh, You know, the act of turning on a light switch at your home could turn into a data event which StatsCan wants to count. That's what's on the horizon, and that's what StatsCan is being asked to explain. Doesn't that sound a little Orwellian? Yes. Now, it certainly does. It sounds Orwellian if it's surveillance. And this is what yeah. you know, I think a lot of Canadians quite rightly go, is this a surveillance state? StatsCan says, no, we don't care, Bill, if you're turning your light on. What we want to know is how much electricity the average household in Hamilton is using, say, versus Oakville or Burlington. What we want to know is, you know, do Italian-speaking men in West Hamilton, uh, go? how much they spend at bakeries per month, versus English-speaking female women, you know, on the mountain. I mean, it's it's that kind of aggregate data about trends as opposed to an individual's spending habits at a bakery or electricity consumption habits. That's what StatsCan's trying to get at. And the way StatsCan gets that now, it phones you up. It does yeah. a survey. It sends you something in the mail. And when you complete that survey, well, you've given your consent. Problem is, Lots and lots of people these days, they don't want to do these surveys. They're not interested in answering the phone for a pollster. And Saskan has real trouble now getting all this data that a lot of people wanted to get. And that's part of the defense that the Prime Minister tried to use this week, David, suggesting that the reason right. why they're even doing this is because Stephen Harper killed the long-form census. I, I got a problem trying to connect those dots. 
Well, yes. So this is where, you know, glass half full, half empty. The Conservatives, you're right, for a decade they were in power. They were deeply suspicious of Statistics Canada, deeply suspicious of big government asking people questions which they thought on the face of it were invasions of privacy. And that's why the Harper government said the long-form census no longer needs to be mandatory. And everybody howled. Social scientists howled. So, well, that spoils the data. The Trudeau government takes over, and as we know, the Trudeau government loves science, and they love scientists, or unmuzzling them, and away you go, scientists, do whatever you want. Well, this is the result of the Trudeau government's hands-off approach at StatScan, is, oh, we're going to hoover up the personal financial information of half a million Canadians without their consent. So I think the Liberals have been a bit tone-deaf about the implications of their quote-unquote love of science, and the Conservatives, I think, you know, you, yes, you could criticize them perhaps about um, they weren't you know, they were damaging a valuable data set, but the Conservatives are saying, you know, privacy starts with consent. And if you don't have the ability to withhold information where you don't, about you, then you don't have privacy. And if privacy is a human right, as many Liberals say it is, well then, isn't the Liberal government violating the human rights of Canadians? Well, That's and, the very interesting argument we're having here. Exactly, and, and I don't know that they, they seem to get that message. I mean, I, to, to your point, David, I don't much care if the government knows that I buy bagels on Saturday, but I do care you know, if they have access to my banking information because that tells me where I'm spending my money and on what I'm spending it and, and who I'm interacting with financially. And, and frankly, a lot of Canadians are going to tell the government that's none of your business. And this is the other thing that I think really stats can probably wants to tell more people about is, um, is is I get asked a lot by my colleagues, by my friends, when I tell them about this story, they say, well, what's next? Health records? And will they turn that over to so-and-so? And, well, you know, people are buying cannabis online now. And, well, stats can collect my cannabis payment information and tell my boss about this or somebody. And the answer is stats can, by law, can't tell anyone, uh, can't tell a soul about the information it collects. It can't even, if, if a federal, if the Supreme Court ordered StatsCan to turn over your record that it collected, it is illegal. It cannot do that. Uh, can't turn it over to the tax man, can't turn it over to the RCMP. It stays with Statistics Canada. And, and it's got a hundred year history of being very good at making sure nobody but statisticians get a chance to look at this. But I really think, particularly with this, these requests, you know, StatsCan definitely needs to do a better job explaining to Canadians just what it's doing and who who gets to look at its data and who does not get to look at its data. It doesn't share it with anyone. But when the Privacy Commissioner and the Prime Minister and everyone else who's weighed in on this says, don't worry about it, you, your information is going to be protected. Given the fact that we almost weekly now hear about data breaches or, or even stuff from the CRA that gets tossed in a dumpster someplace and somebody finds it, I mean, can we take that money to the bank? Can we take their word to the bank when we when we hear these stories? StatsCan has a very good record of protecting privacy of Canadians, but not a perfect one. There was an incident in the 2016 census, um, and this is the paper copies of the census. Somebody's going around every household, writing down all this personal information, putting it on a paper form. There was a case where somebody had put all those forms in the trunk of their car on the way back to the office, and their car got stolen with all those forms. Jeez. So there was a loss of several hundred very valuable data on personal information. There's been a couple of other occasions where StatsCan has lost the forms as they've come in. So like I say, StatsCan, there's been no instance of somebody hacking into the computers at StatsCan or, or that sort of thing, or StatsCan losing a hard drive. But, you know, how do you guard against your, the car got stolen with all the data in it? I mean, but that can happen, and it did. And what was more troubling, perhaps, about that incident was...
the loss of those records to the privacy commissioner. So, okay, StatsCan, we get that mistakes happen, but they, it has to be transparent in disclosing these sorts of data breaches, rare as they may be. And, you know, that again has people a little bit concerned about the processes in place uh, for StatsCan and protection of privacy. As they should, too. Uh, David, thanks so much for shining the light on this story for us this week and for the, uh, the details today. Really appreciate the time. Happy to do so, Bill. Cheers. You too. David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent, of course, uh, speaking to us from Ottawa today. Uh, great reporting by David about that issue. But it, it raises, a, I guess, a greater problem because we hear about hacking and we talk about that and there's, with a great deal of justification because that should be a concern. But how much information is actually being shared that we don't know about? Well, that's a great question. Uh, let's bring Daniel Tabuck into the uh, t conversation. Daniel, of course, is the CEO for Scientelligence, expert on cybersecurity, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Daniel, welcome to the show. Good to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. In, in light of what's going on with Stats Canada here, I, I guess the question a lot of Canadians are asking themselves right now, Daniel, is is how much of our information do are other people sharing that we don't even know about? I mean, I, I know that you've talked about social media and things of this nature, but are government agencies doing this? Are they, are they I guess, hacking may be too strong a word, but accessing our information without our knowledge? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the issues today, you know, on one side, we volunteer way, way too much information. We spoke about that in the past. Yeah. The unfortunate part, you have, you know, incidents like Equifax, which brings and highlights how much of our information is out there that we never either approved or did not know that is sitting somewhere in a container. To me, you know, one of the risks here is that now we have another container where more information will be sitting. And frankly, you know, somebody saying, no, 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 we got this under control. We are protecting your data. Nobody ever uses the word guarantee. So it makes me feel, you know, anti-warm and fuzzy when I know that another government agency will have some information and we will not even know whose information is contained there. They're not saying everybody's information there. They're, they're saying that they're going to use, you know, for example, half a million um, uh, records, uh, you know, that they're going to house there and they're going to have access to this. It's just it's not clear enough. Obviously, the proper strategy was not put in place on, A, what data they're going to have, What's the point of them having that data, and how are they going to guarantee to safeguard it? Well, as David Aiken from Global News just uh, mentioned to us a couple of seconds ago, David, uh, that you know, the, the, the way that we can feel warm and fuzzy about this and confident is, is, first of all, to be part of the dialogue. In other words, ask us. Don't just do it and then tell us after the fact. And I, we don't know how often that's going on now. Yeah. You know, I, unfortunately, I, I, and, and, I, and I say this in a respectful way, I feel before any time, a government makes such a, a strong move that affects its citizens in this way, there has to be dialogue. There literally has to be, you know, some kind of a voting system where the citizens are either agreeing uh, to provide their information or they're not. It should not be, well, hey, okay, we got your information and we need it and that's it. it it's just not right in this day and age. You know, our laws uh, and our legislation is not geared towards the digital era. Uh, our laws are geared towards, hey, you know, if you have that banker box of information at home, we're going to ask you for a scan of copy for our particular um, reason that we need it. And then you know, they know, everybody are on the same page that they have a copy of your information. Today, it's almost accepted. Well, you know, if it's your information and it's digital, we want access to it. And I always ask the question, why? Where did we, where did we change in, in that particular uh, assumption that it, what I call entitlement? To everybody's data. 
Well, and, and that's one of the questions I think a lot of people are asking, and, and I understand, because obviously StatsCan wants data, and they, and they do that, and governments say, well, yeah, the you know, reason why we need that is so that we can develop policies to suit what's going on, etc. We, we know those arguments. But when you get into financial situation or financial records, is that drilling down a little too deeply and a little too personally? I think it's a little too far. I, I have to be... You know, again, I'm um, I'm all about you know open open environments and open communication and and you know data sharing w- w- when is necessary. I think this is going a little too far. But it sounds as if they're going to continue to do this anyway. This is this is the, this is the other problem. We don't have a choice. <laughs> I mean, when the privacy commissioner says, yeah, I, I I guess I'm kind of okay with this, but th- I I go back to your point, and I think you're bang on with this, Daniel. Uh, you know, they can say all they want that don't worry, it's going to be protected. But we we know by history tells us that that's not as you mentioned. You cannot use the word guarantee, and as long yeah. as there's doubt, there should be concern. And David David from Global Mail also mentioned, uh, you know, uh, past uh, what I call incidents and data compromises that have occurred in the government. You know, the latest one from three, four months ago, which finally was settled in court, was the student loan case where, yeah. uh, you know, uh, half a million plus records of, of, of people's financial and history uh, were basically compromised. I mean, this was also, again, I understand somebody broke into a car, maybe stole a hard drive, whatever. It doesn't matter. Data was compromised. So, I mean, this is important. We want the word guarantee. And if they cannot guarantee it, then they have to look at other ways of getting this data. Daniel, thanks as always. Appreciate your time today. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Daniel Tobuck, of course, CEO for Science Intelligence Incorporated. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.